Our scripture this morning comes from the third and fourth chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at verses 16 and 17 in the third chapter and picking up in the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word for us today, found in the New International Version. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came. And attended him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This morning, I'm going to kick off our new worship series, Footsteps, Lessons from Following Jesus in the Holy Land by preaching on the theme, Don't Slip, Standing on the Mount of Temptation. But before I do, let me say again, good morning, Noblesville first. Okay, I haven't been able to say that for three Sundays in person, so just indulge me and let me say that again. Good morning, Noblesville first. There you are. It feels so good to say those words in person, out loud, because I have deeply and sorely missed each and every one of you. I I will always be eternally grateful for the privilege of leading a group of our congregation through the Holy Land. I will always be blessed by the assurance that when I leave, there are faithful and faith-filled preachers like our incoming associate pastor, the the Reverend Brittany Steffen, our celebrated and venerated past pastor, the Reverend Paul Kern, and the soon-to-be Pastor Bonnie Zickgraf, who preached 
with wisdom and power in our Back to the Future series. Can you join me in thanking them for leading our congregation over the last three weeks? I'm so grateful to them. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to have gone to Israel. But that doesn't change the fact that I still missed you. I missed this place. I missed this pulpit. I missed being in my spiritual home. And as the yet-to-be canonized Saint Dorothy of Oz says, there is no place like home. Then I know this because I miss the, the wall of sound that the choir builds song after song that, that wafts over my ears and seeps down into my spirit, singing words on a page that resound long after the service is over. I, I miss your smiles, your, your handshakes, your, your fist bumps, your bear hugs. Some of you hug a little hard. <laughs> I missed, I missed you. I, I didn't realize how much I depend on your words of affirmation, on your encouragement as you leave the sanctuary on Sunday morning, how it straightens my back, how it helps me to face the challenges of teaching and preaching and leading. And I never thought that I would say this, Julia, but I even missed meetings. <laughs> Hell must have frozen over. And now I do triple axles because I missed meetings. I miss long meetings, short meetings, even Zoom meetings. Any opportunity to gather with you, to gather with our staff, to, to pray for the sick, to discuss our vision, and to discern what God has for us next. Noblesville first. United Methodist Church, I missed you. And you know, I believe that same longing, that, that same deep desire for home, for familiar, for comfort, is what Jesus was feeling when we find him in the third and fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Here he is atop a mountain now called the Mount of Temptation that you can see on our screens. This place where our own pilgrims got to climb and stand and look around. This place where Jesus had been fasting and praying for 40 days and for 40 nights. Now when you look at this picture and at the valley below, you can see that desert palette of tan brown and golden hues. There's nothing leafy and green. There's no clear water source or anything remotely living as far as the eye can see. This is a barren place. This is a dry place, a deserted place, and Jesus is thirsty and hungry after being in this place for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet, this is where temptation finds him. Right here, on top of a mountain, in this dry, barren desert, in the middle of nowhere, the tempter finds Jesus. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you've read that verse and you've skipped over it a hundred times before because we quickly move on to what we think is the important part, the conversation between Jesus and the tempter. But it wasn't until I stood on this mountain with my own two feet that I discovered what I think we often miss. And here it is. Temptation always knows where to find us. That no matter how how far we go, how high we climb, how remote, how off the beaten path or untraceable we think we are, temptation knows where to find us. Now, I know that that might sound a little hyperbolic, a little extreme, but if you've ever had small children, then you know that I am telling the truth. You see, for the first five years of children's lives, like many other parents before me, I only ate cold leftovers. Because when children are really little, you're told you have to put their needs first, right? And so you feed them first, and you take the scraps of whatever those tiny dictators don't eat. That's the deal. They don't tell you that at the baby shower, so consider this a warning. But you see, one day, one day I forgot the deal, and I dared to eat food outside of their presence and without their permission. I just finished a Bible study series at church, and and this very thoughtful member sent an edible arrangement to my home. You guys remember those edible arrangements, right? They have bananas and mangoes and cantaloupe and strawberries all hand-dipped in chocolate. And this one had a card that read, this is just for you. For you. Now, my children were napping when that special delivery showed up, so I thought, you know what? She's right. This is just for me. I taught the Bible study. They didn't. In fact, they don't do anything. This is just for me. So I tiptoed upstairs like a thief in my own home. I closed the bedroom door. I went into the closet and I closed that bedroom door too. And I paused, listening to see if I had interrupted the ecosystem and their little feet were following me. But no, it was silent. The coast was clear. And so I I untied the red ribbon, I pulled back the cellophane, I took out one of those chocolate-dipped strawberries, closed my eyes, opened my mouth, and bam! The door swung open, and my two toddler terrorists swaggered in with their bold legs and their hands out asking, can I have some? Until this day, I don't know how they found me. That they lacked the motor skills to properly hold a spoon. How did they jump out of their cribs, open three doors, and find me in my closet? But don't miss this. Isn't that just how temptation works? It it hunts us down just like a toddler hearing a parent enjoying a snack alone. Temptation bursts 
into our closets. It it meets us on mountaintops. It it corners us in cubicles. It plops down next to us in our pew. It tucks us into bed, and it even kisses us goodnight. Whether we're fasting, praying, serving, singing, preaching, or worshiping, temptation knows where to find us. This is a salient reminder today because if we're not careful, we can operate under the illusion that temptation is something that we can outrun, something that we can outsmart with our intelligence or our degrees, something that we can outclimb with our social status, something that we can outmaneuver with our displays of piety. But our text, our text teaches us this morning that Every child of God, even Jesus, the Savior of the world, will be found by temptation. And it sounds a little odd, but but I hope that encourages somebody this morning. Somebody who's been thinking, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just so broken. Maybe I'm just so messed up. I'm so beyond repair. That's why temptation keeps following me wherever I go. But you see, Jesus' journey on top of this mountain is a reminder that when we walk in his footsteps, when we commit to following him, we will walk into temptation. It's an unavoidable part of our human experience and of the faith journey of a follower of Christ. Put simply, it's life. Or as they say in Israel, in Hebrew, El Hakim. You try it. El. Now clear your throat. Kim. Now every time you clear your throat this week, you're going to think of that. You're welcome. You're welcome. El Hakim. You, you, you got it. That's life. Now, while temptation may be an unavoidable part of life, as believers, we have the power to choose how it affects us. And there's two choices. On one hand, temptation can overwhelm us. And on the other hand, temptation can orient us. Now, you know what it looks like when temptation overwhelms us. Its persistent presence can can disrupt the course of our lives, poisoning our relationship with God, with one another, and even ourselves. Temptation can cease from simply being a part of life and instead become a way of life. But that's not the only way. As Jesus shows us in this text, it can orient us into a deeper and more fruitful relationship with God. And here's how. Temptation can teach us not to doubt what God has already declared. Let me say that again. Temptation can teach us not to doubt what God has already declared. Watch this in the text. Temptation finds Jesus on top of this mountain. It smokes him out. It confronts him. And yet, Notice that every tempting offer that is made to Jesus, whether it's bread or or ruling the kingdoms of the world, each offer is done with the preface, if you are the son of God. 
Now, this is notable because it reveals the real aim of temptation, which is not that we lose ourselves in indulgence. It's that we lose our identity. You see, before Jesus climbs this mountain to fast and pray in Matthew chapter 4, in Matthew chapter 3, he was on the banks of the Jordan River. He was here where my fellow pilgrims and I were. And like some of them here, he he was immersed in the water, baptized by John the Baptist, and claimed as a member of the household of God. So much so that Matthew tells us that after Jesus emerged from the water, the clouds parted and God's voice could be audibly heard saying, This is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Jesus heard this affirmation of his identity and everybody else heard it too. But despite this heavenly public service announcement, something shifts when Jesus changes scenes. As soon as he leaves the river, the tempter finds him and begins to challenge his identity. Because here it is, the goal of the tempter is not simply to get you to do something wrong. The goal of the tempter is to get you to forget who you are. The tempter says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And let's be clear, this isn't the great British bake-off. He doesn't want to see Jesus make bread. No, his real goal is for Jesus to begin to question himself. Did I really hear God right? Does God really love me? Has God really claimed me? Has God really gifted me, purposed me, and blessed me? Temptation wants us to doubt our identity. It wants us to doubt what God has already declared at all of our baptisms, that we are loved and that we have been adopted into the family of God. And if you want to stand up to temptation today, it's not enough to just stop doing what's wrong. You have to stop doubting who God says you are. Now, just in case you forgot, Just in case you're not sure, just in case the tempter buckled their seatbelt and drove with you into worship this morning, let me remind you who God says you are. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Romans 8 says that you are a co-heir with Christ. Matthew 5 says that you are the salt of the earth. Corinthians 6 says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44 says that you are the redeemed of the Lord. 2 Corinthians says that you are a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. 
John 15 says that you are chosen. Thessalonians 5 says that you are called. Romans 8 says that you are more than a conqueror. And Psalm 100 says that you belong to God. And if you hear nothing else today, don't you doubt what God has declared about you. Don't you let temptation make you question your identity. You are who God says you are. There's just one challenge. The challenge of the Christian life is remembering that. Remembering that when we're hungry and life has left us wanting. Remembering that when we're thirsty and it seems like nothing or no one can quench our thirst. Remembering that when we're out in the wilderness and we're tempted, it's hard to remember who we are. But watch what Jesus does in the text. Every question to his identity is answered with the truth of Scripture. Jesus withstands this interrogation of his identity not by performing a miracle. Not by healing somebody who's sick or or silencing a storm. No. What helps him stand in the face of doubt, what helps him stand in the face of temptation, What helps him stand in the presence of evil is simply knowing the word of God. Now that sounds easy, right? We've all got smartphones. When temptation comes, we can just ask Siri uh, for that scripture and we can uh, recite it appropriately. But let me be clear by what I mean by knowing. Two days before we walked up the Mount of Temptation on the outskirts of Jerusalem, we went to the Israel Holocaust Museum. Now, I I don't have any pictures to show you because guests are not allowed to take pictures inside of the building. The founders of the museum want you to bear witness to what happened to the impact that unbridled evil and and unchallenged racism can have on humanity. They want you to see it up close and personal with your two eyes and not at a distance behind the lens of a camera. And so this museum is designed chronologically And in one of the the early exhibitions, there are dozens and dozens of damaged Torahs, menorahs, and other sacred objects that have been burned or desecrated by members of the Third Reich. And that's because the Nazi party had this perverse policy of targeting synagogues and temples, of raiding their holy places where the word of God was kept, and then destroying them publicly. They thought that if they could take these books containing the word of God, then they could ultimately destroy Judaism. They could eradicate these people, these stories,
their faith. And this policy, it might have worked if faith was based on what's written on paper. But as one rabbi testified after watching his synagogue be burned to the ground, they don't know it, but their evil plan will fail. These Nazis think that they can burn away the word of God. But they don't know that it is not written on pages, but on the tablets of our hearts. It cannot be consumed. It cannot be erased. The word of God will endure. And so shall we. And perhaps, perhaps that's the message that God wants you and I to hold on to today. That no matter where temptation finds us, no matter what wilderness life brings us to, no matter who questions our identity in Christ, if we know the word of God, if it's written on the tablets of our hearts, it will endure. And so, so shall you.